Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing. Now available at all your finest retailers, making the perfect holiday gift for all your favorite brewers. That's right. you still got a week, so get out there and buy about a dozen copies. Please. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, it's all about questions and whatever answers we can give you. That's right. It's all Q&A time because this episode is divided by 12 equals a whole number. Nine. Nine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, our ninth Q&A, but I think it's time for us to get started. But before we do all that... Please sit back and take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, organizers of Learn to Homebrew Day, a nationwide celebration of homebrewing held every year on the first Saturday of November. To find a brew site near you, or to host your own Learn to Homebrew Day gathering, visit homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. And as always, to get the show going, we're going to start off with a few announcements. Yep, and our first announcement was, if you didn't pay attention to it, last week's Brew Files was a part one of two. Uh, it's all about uh, Anchor's Our Special Ale, a.k.a. Anchor Christmas. And in this episode, Denny and I sat down with Scott Ungerman, brewmaster at Anchor Brewing, and talked about, well, the history of Anchor Our Special Ale, how they make it, with a few... A few kind of generalizations about how they make it, because there's a lot of secret stuff there. Yep, state secrets. But we also talk about, we get his tips about how you can make your own version or your own homage to that. Next week's episode, which will come out the week after this one, on Christmas Day, I couldn't think of a more appropriate time to do that, is all going to be about Denny and I tasting the beer and talking about how we would go and create our own homage to our special ale. So go give it a listen. Yeah, right. It's not a clone. It's an homage. Uh, we also want to let you know that our sponsor, Yakima Chief Hops, now has American Noble Hops available in two-ounce packages on their website and maybe in your local homebrew store. Check there. If you can't find them there, you can go to yakimachief.com slash shop and order your American Nobles directly from Yakima Chief and uh, start messing around with them like we did. 
Yeah, so remember, you know, if your homebrew shop has any sort of relationship with Yakima Chief or Country Malt, they should be able to get their hands on the packages. You'll just have to convince them. And right now, I think they have two of the varieties available, the Simcoe and Mosaic Nobles. I think uh, so. Additional varieties coming in shortly. But these are the things that Dane and I have been playing around with a lot. We really like them for giving that little bit of subtle American character without being in your face. Yeah, so. they're really cool things. And just speaking of really cool things, don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year, and it's running out, it is. It is Chat with Champs, which is a great organization that uh, helps kids with cancer have someone they can talk to and some friends around to support them during their fight. And you have a couple weeks left now to go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and give us whatever you can afford, and we will pass it along to Chat with Champs. There we go. It's kids. It's cancer. Give a buck. Damn it. That's right. And before we hit the questions... It's going to be time for your feedback. feedback. That's right. A couple of pieces of feedback today because, well, why not? Uh, we had a couple of people write in about different things that we've talked about on the episode. So the first piece of feedback is going to be from Andrew Bassett from Illinois, who says, I was listening to your most recent episode discussing a gin and tonic beer. Mm. My mind immediately went to a brute IPA, you know, which was a good idea and not one we thought of. Oddly enough, I was on my way to my local homebrew shop at the time. Shameless plug for Perfect Brewing Supply in Libertyville, Illinois. There you go. Shameless plug delivered. I mentioned it to Ryan, the shop manager and the best brewer I know, when I got there. He suggested trying Omega's Gulo Yeast. I scaled this down to a five-gallon batch within commercial boundary guidelines, and he gives a recipe here for a beer that starts at 1053 with 85% US 2-row and 15% German Pilsner. And then a whole bunch of different things. So some warrior for bitterness, uh, cinchona bark, uh, two ounces, one ounces of juniper berry, three ounces of motueka hops at knockout, uh, two ounces of lime zest, and a half an ounce of lemon zest at knockout, and then dry hopped with five ounces of motueka. Oh, man. How are you even going to know there's any gin and tonic in there? I don't know, but that's a half a pound of motueka. That's an impressive source. Um, mash cool at 144 for 90 minutes, of course, to increase the fermentability. And then use one pack of the Gulo yeast, and it says here you could probably get you could probably even get away without building a starter for the yeast if it's fresh. The strain ferments out like crazy, so no need for amylase here either. And carbonate like a typical brewed IPA, 3.5 volumes or so. And that's his idea for a gin and tonic beer. It's an interesting idea. I think the hops may overpower the stuff, as Denny pointed out. I'm also not a huge fan of going down below about 146 on the mash, but if it works for you, it works. Uh, and I've, I've got to play around with this Gulo yeast because it's kind of interesting. It's another one of these Omega hybrids. So it's not a, a yeast blend. They actually breed these two strains together to produce a, a new strain. And in this particular case, what they bred together was Irish ale and French Cezanne. And what they created out of it was a very aggressive fermenter slash sugar eater without all the overt phenols and esters that you get from the French Cezanne yeast, right? Because... After all, we know that French Cezanne yeast loves to chew everything under God's green creation, but it produces a smelly beer. Um, the apparent attenuation of this particular yeast strain is 85 to 90 percent. Which is so, so basically, it's like a diastaticus Irish ale yeast. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, very clean fermenter. They say it also pushes citrus flavors. Um, 
I think this is really interesting. I kind of, I kind of want to take a, a swing at it and play with it, which of course means, hey, Omega, if you're listening, can I have some? <laughs> well, and I want to know how you actually breed a new yeast strain instead of blending. Lollamand is doing some GMO work with some of their yeast strains. Do you think that maybe Omega did something similar? Uh, you know, Omega, if you're listening, write in. Tell us how the heck you did this. Well, you see, Denny, when a mama yeast and a poppy yeast really love each other? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to avoid saying. <laughs> <laughs> But you went there. Uh, Drew Beecham, making the subtext text <laughs> since 1974. That's right. That's right. The next piece of feedback comes from Keith G., and I don't think Keith told us where he is. So uh, Keith says, in episode 105, okay, episode 10, because it was a rerun, a listener asked about bottling small batches. For small batches, I still dig out my old Mr. Beer fermenter. It holds about two gallons, and the shape leaves relatively little beer behind. A spring-loaded bottling wand fits perfectly in the spigot, making bottling easy. Yeah, that would work. I I just used my good old trusty bottling bucket for two-gallon batches. But uh, if you got something like that around, might as well make use of it, huh? Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense size-wise and exposure-wise. So, man, yeah, if you got the gear... Why not? It gives you a perfect excuse to say, see, not a lost investment. (laughs) Yeah, really. All right. I think it's time for us to do the question dance. I agree. We got a whole bunch of questions we're going to try and answer today. So uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. It's time for us to answer your questions. We've got 25 of these suckers, and we're going to, as we always do, break them down into categories and, well, try and make the best hay that we can while hay making is good. <laughs> wow, hay. It's a little wet for hay around here. First question comes from our old buddy, Eric Pierce. Well, I guess he's probably not all that old, but uh, we've known Eric for a while. 
Eric says, I heard you guys talking on the podcast about the 3726 farmhouse yeast, and I realized I had a pack of Imperial B56 Rustic, which I believe also hails from Brasserie de Blauges. I used a blend of Viking Pale 60%, uh, that's a three Lovabond malt, Mechagrade Shanico, which is a their white wheat malt, Blonde Roasted Oats, 10%, and the remaining 5% blend of Honey Malt and Crystal 20, and 5% Flaked Oats and Wheat. Uh, I'll take Eric's word, that adds up to 100. And a 2-ounce pack of Yakima Chief Laurel Hops, care of Homebrew Con, spread out across the boil and whirlpool to give me a calculated IBU of 30. I pitched the yeast at 65F. For fermentation temperature control, I decided to use the in-law apartment my father lives in. The mudroom between his place and the garage is in the low 60s this time of year, so I thought I'd let it start fermenting out there. After 18 hours, I noticed active fermentation. Two days later, I moved it into my dad's place. He keeps his apartment at a toasty 76 to 78 F. Wow, I guess. I put the fermenter in the corner near some baseboard heaters. <laughs> a week later, I declared it done. Not a bubble to be seen in two days and an FG of 1.008, so it was done. I also called it Cezanne Bubblicious. It's got a pretty strong bubblegum note, and I'm wondering what I can do about this. The beer is pretty good, but the bubblegum thing, combined with some residual sweetness, wants me to play with this a little more. Dry hop some laurel, maybe some spices. Just let it sit for a while. The beer is very drinkable as is, a little sweet but not cloying. A lot of bubble gum on the nose at first, and mysteriously you lose it when you take a sip. I like it, but I think I want to compliment it with something in the keg. Any thoughts? I'll bet you got some thoughts. I always have thoughts. So, yeah, the Blauschies yeast I always find throws a little bit of fruitiness. Um you remember when we did the tasting in my garage, we didn't necessarily get uh, bubble gum, but we did get some fruitiness along with uh, that little bit of a hint of pumpkin, uh, a little bit of squash. Um, so I think there's something that the Blasi strain does a little bit there. I would also probably guess that what you're getting is an interplay with those laurel hops because laurel to me is very fruity. And so the combination of the two is probably giving you that extra fruit note. Um, so, Having said that, I don't think I would dry hop with laurel if that's the flavor that you're trying to get rid of. Um, one, I would probably give it a little bit of time, let it sit, see how uh, see how that changes. I know that as the false fall saison, which I also just killed earlier this week, and it makes me very sad, that that little squashy, pumpkiny, fruity note started uh, faded over time. So I'd give it a little bit of time if it's still there. I would actually probably look at some sort of spice and make like a tincture and use that, you know, maybe like a cinnamon, ginger, and well, maybe not ginger because ginger is going to drive your sweetness uh, perception, but maybe like some cinnamon, some pepper, black pepper, you know, just to give it a little extra oomph. But I'm guessing if you just let it be for a little bit, it will come into line to what you want. So uh, what do you have to say about the temperature? I think the temperature is fine. Uh, the blousey strain doesn't have to be pushed as hard. Uh, so DuPont likes likes being pushed up uh, warm, although, again, I don't like to push it super hot all the time. I think 76, so, 78 is fine for Blauschies, but it's on the upper end of what I like to do with it. After after only two days, though, wouldn't wouldn't you want to wait a little bit longer? What, to go up to 76, 78? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm normally like three, four days at, at the lower temperatures. But, I, again, I've done this in a lot of ways. 
it tends to be fairly forgiving. Again, I think the blousey strain throws a little bit of fruitiness. So I think you just have to let it sit for a little bit. And and again, if you, if the ambient in the apartment is 76 to 78 and you mm-hmm. put the fermenter near the heaters, it's going to be a lot hotter there. Yeah. Eric also wrote in to say that as his father has gotten older, his father likes to uh, keep his living spaces extra hot. And so, you know, he's like, yeah, we're paying a lot of uh, fuel oil bills this this winter. But, of course, he also doesn't run the AC in the summer. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. of course, me being in California, I'm like looking at it going, oh, the apartment, a uh, toasty 76, 78. I'm looking, man, that's like what I keep my house at in summer. <laughs> <laughs> but, again, I think, to me, I would let it sit for a little bit. And then I would think about doing not more laurel because, again, laurel is very fruity. I would actually look at trying to do some sort of spice note to undercut the fruitiness. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, You know, I think that that's probably going to do it. I might be tempted to actually, uh, after I let it age, if it's still there, I might be tempted to brew another batch uh, with a different yeast and blend them or something like that. But, yeah, I I think uh, barring that, uh, your ideas are good. There you go. All right. Our next question in the fermentation category comes from uh, Christopher Salva, who wrote in via email to say, I've started reusing yeast, and often by just removing the finished beer and pouring a large amount of the yeast cake into the next batch. Of course, keeping everything as sanitized as possible. Lately, Pilsner and Lager with WLP 800 and 833. So 833 is German Bach, and 800 is... 833, I believe, is the Iyengar yeast. Yeah, yeah, 833 is German Bach and Iyengar, and I forget which one 800 is. Doesn't matter. And IPA slash pale ale with Y yeast fourteen sixty nine, and that's the Yorkshire, right? Um, if yeah. dry hopping, I will use a bag for the hops. But then I started to think: Is it possible to overpitch the yeast? And if so, what off flavor should I look for, Mister Denny? Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, y yeast uh, on Facebook just recently posted something about uh, pitching rate, and we got into a conversation about this. Uh, and yes, overpitching is possible depend, or despite what you've always been told. It goes into the effect that uh, the enzyme alcohol acetate transferase has on the acetyl-CoA, but uh, definitely uh, it will have an effect. They say depending on the alcohol undergoing this process, different esters will be produced. ATT is minimal when overpitching due to the shortening of the growth phase. So it's difficult to say exactly what to look for. Uh, I would say that I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? I'm continuing this conversation with Y-Yeast, and we'll try and get some more information for you and get back to it. But, yes, you can overpitch just like you can underpitch. The uh, key, I guess, is going to be do you like the beer that comes out or not? Uh, if so, then you're not overpitching, right? That's kind of the whole bottom line. Yeah, and my worry with the process as described is less about overpitching and more about ongoing sanitation. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. If, if if your sanitation is good, you can get away with a lot, and if you got a ton of yeast in there, it's going to be taken off quick before anything else can happen. Personal anecdote here, uh, I used to pitch on the entire yeast cake, and then I started experimenting with dividing a yeast slurry into thirds and only using a third of it when I repitched, and I started thinking that I was getting much better beer flavor out of it. So there you go, anecdotal there information. You go. 
And remember, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next question. Ah, this is a good one, too. Next question comes from Max Milan, or Milan, uh, depending if you want the uh, Italian pronunciation or not. Max is in Texas, and he wrote in to say, I remember hearing a while back that it's useful to carry Ziploc bags around with you in case you run into a brewer who's dumping yeast. With that logic in mind, could one use a Ziploc bag when harvesting yeast slurry? Seems to me like it would make for easy storage, and when it's time to pitch or make a starter next time, all you would need to do is snip the corner off the bag with some sanitized scissors. What do you think? And sanitize the bag. Um... Yeah, I mean, I could see that working. My problem with it would just be I'd be afraid of the contamination that you're going to get as you're pulling the yeast into the bag. Because remember, the advantage that a pro brewer would have is that they can, you know, essentially eject via a small valve port. You know, most most home brewers, you don't have, you know, some easy way to transfer. And so you got that lip over type transfer if you're going via, you know, say out of a carboy or something like that. If you can figure out how to cleanly transfer the yeast into the Ziploc bag, I think you're probably good there. And, of course, the other thing that you'd have to be concerned about is keeping the bag safe. So that's my thought. I mean, I think I think you could do it. I haven't done it. Um, but then again, I mean, uh, breweries tend to use plastic bags for fast ferment tests too. So You know, and I, I did it once, and I found out that there are two downsides. Uh, number one – and, and these are strictly pragmatic things. Number one, that bag is not real hardy, so you have to kind of be careful with it so you don't puncture it. And number two, keep in mind that even when a yeast slurry is refrigerated, it's going to keep fermenting slowly. That's why I went to storing yeast in plastic containers with snap-on lids so that I didn't have to worry about it. If you put it in a Ziploc bag, uh, that pressure is going to start building up in the bag, and you got to be aware of it and keep an eye on it. So, you know, given given those caveats, uh, I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with doing that. Yeah, and so I think one thing to do with the delicate nature of the Ziploc bags would be spend the extra money on a freezer bag, because the freezer bags at least are a little bit hardier. Oh, oh definitely, definitely. That's what you'd want to use the heaviest duty bag you could find. Yeah. So it's an interesting idea, but uh, yeah, not one I've played with. Denny, you've played with it, and I, I don't know why I didn't think about it before, but I do think the challenge for homebrewers is just going to be getting that clean transfer into the bag. If you can do that, you're good. Yeah, like I said, I did it once, and I didn't do it anymore because it was more of a hassle than an advantage. So Our next question comes from Mike Nordstrom from Montana, who wrote in on the website to say, I have a spunding question. Why should I waste my time with a forced fermentation test? I ferment in a 10-gallon corny and plan to attach my spunding valve to the gas inlet, set it to 13.5 to 14 PSI after the first day of fermentation. Won't the spunding valve keep the beer from overcarbonating regardless of how long it is left on? Denny? <laughs> You're talking to a guy who has very minimal spunding experience. Uh, again, I, this is something I tried a few times, and... Uh, I just cannot get it to work schedule-wise with me. So this is going to be totally theoretical based on what I know of spending and my minimal experience with it. But I say, Mike, yeah, I I think that you might be on to something there. And so give it a try and tell us if it works or not. Beyond that, that's all I got. Well, and just so listeners will know, if you haven't, if you don't know what a spending valve is, a spending valve is a pressure relief valve, right? You know, so 
German term for a pressure relief valve that you can dial in the pressure on. So the idea is, as Mike is saying here, he's going to set it to 13.5 to 14 PSI, which means that whenever the headspace gets above that pressure line, gas will release through the valve and it will stay somewhat in that area, assuming that the valve is working mechanically and nothing's going wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Caveats about human beings not being perfect. And so the, I, I think if I'm following here correctly, the idea is, I mean, you do a force fermentation test to find out where your possible maximum terminal gravity is, right? So this beer will go no lower than 1010 because I've put it on a stir plate or I've shaken the hell out of it with a small amount of yeast in it and seen exactly what will happen if all I do is try and maximize my fermentation speed. Using the spinning valve, you know, I can see what Mike's saying here is, well, I don't have to worry about my, what my terminal gravity is because I'm never going to overcarbonate. Uh, to me, that's kind of a mixed message here on the tests. You know, I don't think the spinning valve necessarily relieves you of anything that you want to get out of the force fermentation test. But then again, I only do a force fermentation test under very specific uh, conditions. So to me, it's not a normal part of my process. Um, so I think you're fine. I think you're fine using the spunding valve as, as, as you're going to go. The only thing the force fermentation test will tell you is if you compare the fermentation terminal gravity that you get, you'll have something to baseline it against, which will also give you the idea of whether or not you're doing something funny with your pressure fermentation to the yeast and its possible maximum fermentation. So I'm, I'm less concerned about, I would be less concerned about using the fast ferment to tell me whether or not I'm potentially overcarbonating my beer and more about whether or not the fermentation is stalled because of pressure effects of the yeast because of a particular strain that you're using. Yeah, but that's, you know, as far as we know, there are only like maybe like one or two strains that are going to be really pressure sensitive. Yeah, but uh, you never know. One of, one of the big things that people are getting into these days is fermenting under pressure, which mm – -hmm. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a technique that people are adapting from what lager breweries have done because lager breweries or some lager breweries have played around with, oh, with the particular strains. If you ferment under pressure, you can get a cleaner from it, which means that you can turn the, the beer around faster. Um, and based on people I've talked to who've tried this, it has kind of limited usefulness for home brewers, but don't let me stop you from doing it if that's something you want to do. Exactly. All right. Next question. And our next question comes from uh, Ron Orzog. Uh, from Raleigh, who wrote to us on Facebook, and it says, I've been binge listening to your podcast as a truck driver. It helps the day move quicker. So after 23 years, I've decided to start brewing again. Yay! It's overwhelming how far everything has come since the mid-90s. I know. So I'm starting off with a Belgian wit, because that's what my wife likes. Happy wife, happy life. My question is, can I pitch liquid yeast with dry yeast? I've read liquid yeast has more flavor than dry, but dry is stronger and cleans up better. So my reasoning is to start with wet, give it a day or two to get going, and then add dry to help finish off the fermentation. I have never heard of wet yeast until recently after listening to you guys. Is this feasible or just a waste of time? Thank you for all you do. Your show is very educating. I wish Denny would come up with another song so I'd have something new to hum to. Thanks again, and stay juicy. Sorry, I had to say it. <laughs> Ron, you have been listening, haven't you? Mm. Uh, <clears throat> last part first. Uh, just this morning, I had an idea for maybe like working all the young dudes into something. What do you think, Drew? Well, I think it would have to be all the young brews. Of course. Of course. That's it. Uh, yeah. So anyway, you never know. That, that may uh, show up soon. Okay, uh, Ron, let's get to your real question here. Can you pitch liquid yeast with dry yeast? Yes, you can. Is this feasible or just a waste of time? 
Sure, it's feasible, but it's also a waste of time. You may have taken something wrong or been misinformed about uh, dry yeast, finishing off the fermentation better, cleaning up better, being stronger. You can certainly just use liquid yeast for the entire fermentation. That's what we do pretty much like all the time, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's there's really no need, at least as a regular practice, to pitch liquid and dry yeast together. Um, if there was something wrong with the liquid yeast, it didn't ferment well enough, you might want to eventually pitch some dry yeast, but that's uh, more of, a, of an ease of use question than anything. You could also just make a big starter with liquid yeast and put it in there. But you might as well just start off assuming that everything's going to work fine and just use one or the other. And if you're making a whip beer, uh, I would suggest something like uh, Y East 3944. I'm sure White Labs and uh, other people have a good liquid wit strain available also. So, like I said, you know, it's your beer. You can do anything you want to do, but there's really no need to do both. Yeah, the only time I bother with doing liquid and dry yeast is if I get a fermentation that is stalled out for whatever reason, at which point in time I may, you know, after the fermentation has kind of gone kaplush, I'll add some dry yeast to try and get it to finish out. That's usually a desperation move. Yeah, that's that's what I was saying, man. In that case, yeah, you can do that, although I think that uh, for me, my preference would be just making a nice big active starter of the same liquid yeast I started with and putting that in to maintain the flavor profile. Yeah, but sometimes it's handy to have dry yeast on hand. Oh, that's why it's in the fridge, dude. <laughs> I have lots there. All right. Well, I think that's the end of our fermentation questions. So that's segment one done. I think it's time for us to get ready for segment two and talk about ingredients. And when we come back, we'll be taking your questions about ingredients. So please stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play.
Welcome back. And remember, please, when you do business with any of our sponsors, let them know that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. So it's time for ingredient questions now. Drew's going to take the first one, and it comes from Andrew Klosenbucher. Uh, wow. I hope I pronounced your name right, Andrew. Uh, well, he, he did give us permission just to say Andrew K., but I figured okay. I'd let you say the full name. <laughs> you always do that to me. <laughs> Andrew lives in Colorado Springs, and he sent this in via text, and he says, I have a couple quick questions. The first is in regards to the FDA GRAS list. That's G-R-A-S. I'm, Drew will explain what that means. I'm interested in using pink peppercorns in a beer. No recipe plans yet. Open to ideas. Oh, I've got some. I understand they are not considered grass. Should I worry about this? Are there other non-grass ingredients you would be willing to use despite that status? Yeah. All right. So let's start with the obvious one. Grass is a, um, well, it's an acronym. It means generally regarded as safe. And it is a giant list of foodstuffs and food additives that the FDA maintains per application. So something may be considered safe to be used in, say, a baked good, but not considered safe to be used in beer. Now, here's the, the, the big trick about it is grass is just a list of ingredients that the government has basically given their thumbs up to. It does not actually mean that something that's not on the list is considered toxic. It just means that nobody's bothered to go through the process of filing all of the scientific evidence and, you know, paperwork that's necessary in order to get that certification done. So pink peppercorns, which usually come from the Brazilian pepper tree, or if you grew up in Florida, like I did, you called it Florida Holly, um, was briefly banned out of the country in 1982 because the FDA was worried about some um, less than savory side effects that the, that the seed could actually carry. It is now allowed into the country. You are allowed to have pink peppercorns here. It is not on the FDA's grass list as far as I can tell. So nobody's bothered to go through and actually you know do all the paperwork for it. Now, having said that, boy, howdy, are there a bunch of pink peppercorn beers out there? If you yeah. just if you just go and search the word pink peppercorn and beer, you will come up with a bunch of things, including beers from say like Goose Island and New Belgium. So a bunch of big companies. In general, things have to be on the gross list in order to be used in beer that's going to be shipped across state lines, right? In order to have it approved by the TTB and all that sort of good stuff. And in this particular case, I'm guessing uh, these beers were not released out, but they've been used a lot in brewing. No big surprise here. So yes, I would, I would consider gras, uh, I would consider pink peppercorns to be safe just given the industry wide usage of them. Um, a lot of times people are going and using them in wit beers or saisons. You know, they have, they've had a lot of use in the, the Belgian side, side of the world. Um, I could see where you could use them in other things. Pink peppercorn has a very distinctively fruity, biting flavor. So I think that's part of the reason why people like to use it in the Belgians. Uh, in terms of other non-gross ingredients that I would like to play with, um, well, there's a really nice one that we're not allowed to use anymore uh, uh, called Tonka beans. And, uh, <laughs> do they come from Tonka trucks? They do not come from Tonka trucks. Uh, actually, the primary source of Tonka beans is Mexico. And the problem is that Tonka beans contain a compound in it that you know is, well, not good for you. But in general, in order to suffer the side effects of Tonka beans, you'd have to uh, 
use a lot of it. It's kind of related to a vanilla type flavor, but with other aspects to it. And Tonka is used pretty much all around the rest of the world. So uh, particularly in the UK, they have a fondness for it. So I think Tonka would be kind of fun to play with, but uh, I haven't gone and bothered to order from Amazon yet. And I have uh, frequently used pink, green, and white peppercorns in a triple. Uh, I really like them. Uh, a lot of Belgian beers uh, use grains of paradise, and the fruitiness of those uh, green, pink, and white peppercorns kind of mimics uh, what uh, grains of paradise would do. If you uh, have a copy of Experimental Brewing, there's a recipe in there for a triple made with caramelized honey and pink, green, and white peppercorns. Uh, give it a shot, man. It's a it's a darn good beer. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm, I agree. All right. So our next question comes from Anthony Wagner, who wrote us in via email. It says, I know there are many variables, and I won't get deep into the details, but what, if anything, other than malt and hops contributes to the color of beer? Recently, I brewed a California Common and then followed that up with a pale ale on the same day. Again, trying to stay higher level here so I won't get into the recipes. Pre-boil, the color of each recipe seemed on point to what the grain bill was. Post-boil, and more so post-fermenter agitation, both beers seemed much darker than the recipe would have it. In general, I use well water for my brewing, but never had it tested. I'd like to learn more about water chemistry, as I have a suspicion that may be causing this. Can you recommend any resources for water chemistry knowledge, or am I looking in the wrong place for an answer to color? Uh, yeah, I think maybe you are looking in the wrong place, although I'm not sure I have anything definitive to tell you. Uh, okay, let's just start at the top here. I can't imagine how hops would have any contribution to the color of beer, would you? A buttload of really old hops? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't think it's anything other. Yeah. I don't think it's the hops. No. Uh, the malt is obviously going to make the biggest contribution. So you know, let's let's start with that. Pre-boil, the color of each recipe seemed on point to what the grain bill was. Post-boil, and more so post-fermenter agitation, both beers seem much darker. Okay, so I guess. Obviously, boiling is going to darken the beer uh, due to the Maillard reaction. Uh, in regards to that, pH could have a minor effect on it, but I would say that your pH would have to be way, way off in order to uh, have any kind of major effect. And if it was off that far, you would notice it uh, in the flavor of the beer, in your efficiency, any number of things. So that might be it. Uh, you know, boil vigor obviously might have something to do with it. But, you know, when you say both beers seemed much darker than the recipe would have it, I'm kind of wondering how you decided that. Uh, you know, and maybe, maybe they're just fine and maybe it's your perception of what you expect. Uh, but, I would say I would say that it's the grain uh, and the boil vigor with a minor effect of pH on it. Uh, a good place to learn about water chemistry, I'll tell you right now, is the Brew and Water Water Knowledge page. Uh, if you go out there and uh, Google Brew and Water, go to Martin's uh, web page for that, and then flip over to the Water Knowledge page. There is all the information there you're going to need in an easy-to-understand, well-thought-out format that really 
is a lot easier than some of the water books that are out there. Uh, and the knowledge is every bit as authoritative and just much more easy to absorb. Yeah, and that's B-R-U-N, water. Exactly. Yeah, um, and I'll throw in a little bit of extra because, again, I'm not seeing any indications that the color in the glass seems off. Um, I agree with you. It's probably not the water because your water chemistry would probably have to be really screwy. And, and given that, again, we're not talking about anything that seems to be long-term, you know, we're not talking oxidation damage because oxidation will also darken a beer. Um, my guess is what you're seeing here is also just the effect of, you know, the, the tricky effect that volume plays on your eyes. Every beer I've ever put into a carboy and looked at in the carboy seems so much darker than it actually is just because that mass of beer absorbs more light. Um, so that would be, be one of my guess. And also don't forget that yeast will also make things appear in different colors just because of, you know, the way beer or yeast affects the beer's translucency and reflects and traps light and all that sort of good stuff. So again, I'm not seeing any indications, Anthony, that you're talking about the beer in the glass post-fermentation. Um, so I would say you're probably not that far off. Just remember that when you have beer in bulk, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. Yeah. And, uh, I would, again, since you mentioned post-fermentation, uh, you know, if it's still in the fermenter, the yeast will definitely play a big effect on your perception of the color of the beer. So, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about it, especially if the final beer turns out the way you want it to be. There we go. Next question. Okay. This one comes from our friend Bjorn Bjornson, who writes in frequently with questions we have a hard time answering. And uh, I think that's going to be the case again today. Bjorn says, I have so many questions I've been pondering for years regarding this paper by S.R. LaFontaine and Tom Shellhammer, the impact of static dry hopping rate on the sensory and analytical profiles of beer. I believe this is the paper where they found evidence of the diminishing returns of dry hopping and found proof of the saturation point of 8 grams of hops per liter. The first question may come across as somewhat stupid. No, never, Bjorn. When does actually the dry hopping period start? I am more and more thinking of the hop stand as the first dry hopping. I've experimented with hop stands as cold as 40 degrees centigrade, which is as hot as a quike fermentation may be done. Do we calculate the hop stand and the biotransformation hop addition into this 8 grams per liter saturation point? Or is it only the traditional post-fermentation hop addition that makes up the hop saturation point? What is the saturation point if you're using cryo hops? Is it still 8 grams per liter or is it half the amount, 4 grams per liter? And what about products like Hop Burst, which we'll talk about in a minute? Would actually adding this increase hop aroma and flavor if you were already at the saturation point? Does dry hopping temperature affect the saturation point? And what about pH? We know that higher levels of hopping will result in a beer with higher pH. Would lowering the pH affect the saturation point? Last, does alcohol level affect the saturation point? You may ask, why don't you go and check it out for yourself? And the simple truth is that I don't have nearly enough time to do this. And when I brew, I need to brew for more practical reasons, like getting good beer into my kegerator. Bjorn, buddy, I feel you. And <laughs> boy, okay, this is, uh, this is a load. And unfortunately, we're not going to have a lot of answers to your questions. And I think what we're going to have to actually do is go get Professor Shellhammer on the phone and get him to answer some of these questions. But I think the first thing to do is... 
again, the study was about static dry hopping rates. So, you know, no agitation or nothing else. So I don't think you can count the hop stand, um, or, you know, into this because I don't think that that hot stand is going to quite have the same impact. Um, and I'm, I'm 99% certain they did traditional dry hopping yeah. with this. Yeah, they did. Uh, cause remember they were, they were using, I think, uh, Coors Light or Coors, yeah. um, to do it. So they, they already started with a finished beer. And so, um, and that the uh, quite fermentation that you're talking about 40 C, so 104 degrees Fahrenheit for those of us using silly units. Um, yeah, I, again, I think, I, I think here with that biotransformation, that might actually, st- I, that may actually start to impact the, the absorption rate, but I can't tell you for certain. Um, and again, pH level, I, you know, if you're in a finished fermentation like you are in this study, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what that impact from the pH level is going to be because that wasn't part of the study. Um, yeah, and I, I question uh, how much the pH will uh, increase due to dry hopping. I, I don't know if I've ever measured that, and I don't know if I've ever heard of anyone who has, or right. if it's even measurable. Right, and and then uh, on the hot burst stuff, I don't think that hot burst stuff can it would count into the 8 grams per liter, uh, because looking at the profile for this, it's a, a British product. It seems to me that's very much it's a set of terpenes, Right. So, um, it's a terpene, a terpene solution in a, in a soluble, uh, substrate. So I'm not sure that would actually impact your, your, your dry hopping absorption rates. Um, who knows? It might, but, um, I think what this question brings to us, because this came in late and I, I still want us to address this is that we need to sit down and have people ask, uh, Dr. Shellhammer questions. Yeah. Um, and I have a couple uh, anecdotal uh, things I can add to this. In terms of cryo hops, I would guess that that would not make a difference in the hopping rate. And if anything, you might actually even be able to use more cryo hops as opposed to fewer. Uh, I have dry hopped with cryo hops to a rate well in excess of eight grams per liter without getting the vegetal flavors that uh, that they mentioned in that paper. I tend to think that that might be because the cryo hops have had the bract removed and those flavors when you put in a huge amount of dry hops, say your metric butt load, uh, may be coming from the the vegetation in the hops and not the lupulin. Well, see, so, I, but I wonder though is, I wonder if the if the perception is different, like what what the actual uh, milligrams per liter saturation point is, just because is it your perceptions different because you don't have the tannin and all that other stuff from the from the bracts, or is there more oil going into solution? Yeah, right. I mean, who knows? Uh, all I can tell you is that I have exceeded that eight grams per liter with cryo hops and felt like it was great. Temperature-wise, my, again, experience is that uh, dry hopping at a higher temperature, say 70, 72, as opposed to 45 to 50, does bring out more from the hops. Uh, is there anything in else in there that I have any kind of wild guesses about? Uh, no, I, I guess not. That's that's about it. So, Bjorn, what we're going to do is we're going to try and get a hold of Tom Shellhammer and uh, see if maybe we can get him on the program or maybe even answer some questions via email and see what we can do. Uh, no promises. 
We haven't actually talked to him yet, so I don't want to make any promises for him, but uh, that's what we'd love to do. Yep, I think that's probably a good idea. And our next question comes from our good buddy, Brendan, down in Sydney. Where it's smoky as hell right now, so uh, hang in there, Brendan. I was going to say, it reminds me of California. Um, (laughs) And Brendan says, "Uh, recently I was brewing a a Bohemian Pilsner and didn't realize it was out of acid malt. I normally substitute 1-2% to of the Pils malt with the acid malt. I don't do any pH measurements, but I've noticed it helps with the hot break in the kettle. I did have lactic acid, and after a little internet searching, I added four milliliters into the mash. Uh, he used uh, a forum talk uh, on Humbrew Talk about how to figure out how to do it, and a huge surprise here, the commenter was A.J. DeLang. <laughs> oh, yeah. A.J. knows a bit about that. Yeah, those of us who've been around for a while, we know to stand back when that happens. Um, is there a quick formula that can be used to substitute 88% lactic for acid malt? i.e. one milliliter of 88% lactic acid can bring distilled water to the pH of blank down 0.1 pH point or something like that. I know it can be affected by mash water, pH, malt bill, and temperature. What do you think? Uh, yeah, you know, and I'm kind of like looking up some things here right now. And I, first thing I found was a reference to A.J. DeLang. Uh, and so, yeah, let me see if I can get this formula here. AJ says that it takes about 27 milliliters of 88% lactic acid to do the same as one kilogram of acid malt. So, you know, yeah, there, there you go. Uh, you can do the math for yourself. All right. So again, that's how many, how many milligrams or milliliters? 27 milliliters of lactic acid. So 27 milliliters per kilogram. Yeah. Okay. There you go. That should be fairly easy. And for once, uh, AJ kept it simple. <laughs> yeah, really, man. Generally, when he answers a question, I'm doing like research for a week in order to figure out what the heck he's talking about. Yeah. For listeners who don't know, uh, AJ is very, very knowledgeable, very, very thorough, and oftentimes gives answers that are very, very, very above our heads. Our next question comes from Bryce Wolf, who doesn't tell us where the heck he is, so he's out there somewhere. Bryce says, my homebrew club does an annual fantasy beer draft. Think fantasy football, but with brewing ingredients instead. One of the ingredients I drafted was bourbon. I was originally trying to do a maple pecan bourbon American porter in the 6% range, but the mystery yeast we received from bootleg biology gives it a slight phenol reminiscent of a double. Anyway, I was curious if y'all had any insight on how much bourbon to add to a beer that's closer to a session beer than an imperial. It seems like many people suggest 8 to 12 ounces per 5-gallon batch when doing an imperial beer. I was thinking about two to four ounces is the beer I want to have bourbon characteristics, but not come across as too boozy. So uh, he gives the recipe he used here. So he also made two tinctures with bourbon, one of uh, Elijah Craig, 12-year-old bourbon infused with a quarter cup of toasted fenugreek and a sugar maple oak spiral. The other one was a cup of Elijah Craig, 12-year-old bourbon infused with four ounces of toasted pecans. I'm planning on doing a blend of the two tinctures and adding it to the keg here in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for your time and insight. Well, I know what I'd say, and it's an easy answer, but what do you say? Um, forget the beer. I want the bourbon. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think I, to me, the, the only answer that you can tell, because again, this is, this is a 
a personal thing and taste is subjective is you got to test it out on the small scale and give it a taste, which is I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, right, because this is exactly what I had to do when I was developing the recipe for the bourbon vanilla imperial porter many years ago. Uh, I started out by pouring four four-ounce samples of the beer and dosing each one with a different measured amount of bourbon. Uh, I tasted them, I decided which one I liked best, and I scaled that up to the batch size. And yes, it really is just that easy. Don't guess. It's just, it, it's too easy to do it empirically and find out exactly what you like. So take the finished beer, pour four measured glasses, add a different measured amount of your tinctures to each one, blend the tinctures, whatever you want to do, and decide what you like best. It's, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. It, it's hard to quantify taste. Exactly. So easy peasy. Plus, it gives you a good excuse to have a, a, a beer while you're testing. Yeah, exactly. All right. Last ingredient question. All right. Drew gets this one. It comes in from Stephen Wade. I'm making a pilot batch for an event in the spring of a strawberry vanilla milkshake IPA. I have never tried to get strawberry flavor in a beer before, so I was thinking of adding fresh strawberries in a secondary after freezing them first. Do you think I would get a good amount of strawberry flavor that way, or would it be too tart? Also, how much do you think I should add for a five-gallon batch? Any other suggestions to get strawberry flavor in an IPA without it being too sweet or tart? Oh, yeah, but you go first. Yeah, extract. Exactly. <laughs> That's just what I was going to say, man. It is. Now, I know somebody's going to write in and, and oh, I, I have, I, have I have answers about how to do this the other way, but let me get the... Let me give the anecdote that I tell people because strawberry is an annoying flavor. It yeah. is super incredible to it, super incredibly faint and super incredibly hard to capture in a beer and have it actually last at all. So I had a friend who got commissioned by the Oxnard Strawberry Festival one year to produce at his brewery a strawberry lager. And they added a metric buttload of um of fresh strawberries, because Oxnard of course has a lot of strawberries. And the beer smelled and tasted like strawberries for a day. And right. then it went poof and disappeared. And they finally ended up having to add both uh, a aseptic strawberry puree and also a strawberry extract in order to get the thing to hold. So my common answer to that is, particularly if it's going to be a beer that you want to have um, hold for a while, don't use fresh strawberries. Use uh, puree and use use a little extract as a booster and a sort of a fixant. Um, now, having said that, there was one year when I was at uh, homebrew con and that must have been like 2016 so a while ago and it, i think it was when we were in philly and one of the clubs there was pouring a strawberry milkshake ipa which sounds exactly like what you're trying to do here and he got away with some murder because it was it was a fresh beer and he actually ended up using for a five gallon batch um it was six pounds of strawberry puree added on top of one and a half pounds of lactose and both added about two days after fermentation started so, I mean, the beer was obviously, you know, a fairly fresh beer because, again, New England, New Englandish milkshakeish IPA thing. You don't want a lot of age on that. So you can do uh, the puree and have some success. Just know that it's going to fade pretty quickly. And I would skip well over doing fresh fruit because there's zero advantage to doing it. Yeah, exactly. Uh I have not brewed a strawberry beer. I've had several. I've talked to people who brewed them and... 
using real fresh strawberries is not a good way to go. Uh, strawberry extract will get you what you want. I would even be kind of tempted to make maybe like a little bit of a puree, put a spoonful of it in the glass and pour the beer on top of that. Uh, depending on your serving situation, that may or may not be practical. Uh, I would also say, since you're going for an IPA here, a strawberry vanilla milkshake IPA, that that uh, style generally has a whole lot of late hops, and I would be a little careful with those also. Yep. All right. Well, that's the end of our ingredients questions. I think it's time for us to take a break. All right. We're going to be right back, and we'll be getting into recipe questions, so stick around. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. sticking around we're back and we've got some recipe questions to tackle the first one comes from david christman in seattle via facebook and he says hey denny and drew a philosophical question for you i was recently looking at breweries close to my work and saw one that had brewed a grisette much to my dismay it was listed at 6.2 percent abv much higher than the style is traditionally it frustrated me due to how much information is available about grisette due to people like dave jansen doing hard work so the question is as brewers what do you feel our reaction should be when we see beers using the name of a well-defined historic beer style that are clearly not that historic style thanks hamwater aka david from seattle P.S. After hearing about your reaction to Bainbridge Brewing's Res Judicata, I thought I'd let you know that the North Seattle homebrewers still have the original barrel that culture came from. It's still going strong in its eighth year and currently holds a golden strong ale that went in a couple of months ago. Well, man, just just hearing the name Res Judicata makes me want another one. Mmm, beer. Beer. All right. And one, I'm not entirely certain I want to know why David's nickname is Hamwater. But having said that, yeah, David Jansen's doing great work in terms of defining Grisette. However, here's the here's the problem. The only people who have ever given a damn about beer styles and proper guidelines other than German law is us beer nerds. The breweries have never cared. Nobody's ever cared. You know, if you go back and you look, you know, go dig back through like Martin Cornwell and, and Ron Pattinson's history and all the stuff that those guys are pulling up. And you'll see that, um, well, yeah, breweries never cared what they called the beer as long as it was the thing that was popular at the time. Uh, right. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah uh, as as a beer nerd, does it frustrate me to see people doing that and making a 6.2 grisette? Sure. But at the same time, I, I guarantee you the brewer himself probably would like to make the traditional version of grisette. 
and just knows that it's not going to sell. And that so they're could... they're selling what they're making what will sell, and they're naming it after the thing that they're kind of leaning towards. And plus, let's face it, American breweries tend to step on the gas in every aspect anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I often say that uh, beer styles are really only good for homebrew competitions, and it's not quite like that. Um, I think that the main issue is that if you go into a place and buy a beer and they're calling it one thing and it's not like that, then you're expectations have been disappointed because you're not getting what you expect. Um, other than that, I mean, it's like, look at the Great American Beer Festival, right? They have guidelines, but every time a brewer comes up with a new type of beer, they change the guidelines and add a guideline for that so that it fits. Um, I guess I don't have as much of a problem with it in terms of integrity of the style as I do with uh, missing your expectations. Well, and I think the important part here is at least the brewery that David was looking at gave the style and then also gave the ABV so that, you know, those who are in the know could raise an eyebrow and go, hmm? Yeah. You go, yeah, it's a little strong for a grisette, but if it tastes good, that's good enough for me. Yeah. I mean, I would love it if people stuck uh, closer to historical meanings of things, but given that the historical meaning of things has often been very wibbly, I suspect that this is no different than it's ever been. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. So our next question comes from uh, Galen McDougal in Santa Barbara, uh, right up the coast from me. Uh, I wrote him via email to say, I'm curious to hear, in your opinions, what are the differences between a stout and a porter? Is it one with roasted barley, one with roasted malt? Are they one and the same? Seems there are many perspectives out there, and I've never had a great answer myself. I'm curious what yours are. After all, how do I know if I call my homebrew a porter or a stout? And boy, doesn't this feel like it ties into the last question. <laughs> yeah, it does, man. Another philosophical question. There's been a, a discussion going about this uh, on the AHA discussion forum recently. Uh, I'll tell you my take, which I posted there. That is that a stout has roasted barley. And a porter doesn't, you know, uh, I use, for my porter, I use chocolate malt. I use uh, just a little tiny touch of black patent to give it a bite because uh, I spent so much time trying to smooth out my porter that it became insipid. So uh, I do that. Uh, your classic stout recipe, like for Guinness, is uh, 70% pale malt, 20% flaked barley, and uh, 10% roasted barley. I know that historically, as Pattinson has pointed out, that, uh, you know, there was a wide range of grists for both porters and stouts. And, uh, you know, in that case, you're going to get really confused. So I just look at it in the contemporary way. And I'm saying that uh, these days a stout has roasted barley and a porter doesn't. Uh, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, see, and I don't agree with that, but that's no surprise. I mean, because, again, going by the, the records out there and also seeing what people are even producing today, the roasted barley, black malt, patent malt thing, or chocolate malt gets tossed back and forth all the time, right? You know, like, oh, yeah, no, that's my porter, but it's got roasted barley in it. I think really what separates the two is the ultimate flavor profile. To me, I always say that, until you're starting to deal with like Imperials, right? To me, I always think that 
porter has a slightly more acrid tone to it. And stout, at least as exemplified by, say, like Guinness, has a smoother tone to it. Now, and of course, let's not forget that stout really just started as stout porter, which has been a stronger porter, which has absolutely nothing to do with modern life. Um, you know, it's interesting because I I would flip that around in my opinion. So yeah. well, see, I think, I think I'm looking I'm looking at like say take like a, a Deschutes Black Butte, uh-huh. right, and then compare that to say Guinness. And to me, there's a there's a much stronger bite from the black malt or from, from the dark malts or dark grains in in that Black Butte than there is in Guinness. See, and I perceive those just totally the opposite. So I guess we're getting exactly to the heart of Galen's question here. Uh, and so when he says, how do I know if I call my homebrew a porter or a stout? It's kind of up to him, isn't it? Yeah, nobody, nobody really knows. But everybody has, has their opinions and philosophies. But I think that's that has been a debate that has been raging since American breweries uh, first refired up the idea of porter and hasn't gone away in the 40-some-odd years since. Yep, I think that that's probably true. Next question on recipes comes from Michael Newman in Baton Rouge. He says, hey, Drew, I was listening to some old podcasts while driving and came across your episode 55, Triple Your Gold. You stated that YU's 3787 takes three to four weeks to condition. What is it in your experience that changes in that time? The reason I ask is that I recently kegged the triple and it tastes a little banal and I'm wondering what I might expect from aging. Also, age cold or at room temp? Well, I got thoughts on this one, too, but you get to go first. Yeah, don't we all? Um, so for my problem with 3787, it's not actually that it tastes bland or banal when you when you first get it. It's actually, it's got, there's a, um, a strong phenol note that I usually get in 3787 when it's very, very young that tends to fade. And so that's why I say, uh, give, it a, uh, give it a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, by the way, I, I love that yeast and I use it all the time. So... Um, but the, to me, that's, that's been my experience with it and okay. Aging cold versus room temperature, uh, depends if you want to think like an American or if you want to think like a Belgian, if you're thinking like an American cold, if you're thinking like a Belgian, they, all of these Belgian breweries have a notion of what they call the warm room, although that's usually where they're doing their, their bottle fermentation. So you could also age it warm and I think you're probably fine. But no, I mean me, I tend to just throw it into the keg throw it in the chest freezer and let it sit for, you know, three weeks before I decide to really hit it hard. Now for Denny's completely opposing thoughts. Well, I wouldn't say completely opposing. Um, I don't get that much phenol out of, I do get some phenol out of it. Uh, I don't necessarily condition it for three or four weeks. So what temperature do you ferment it at, Drew? Um, usually I do the same thing I do with a lot of my Belgians, which is start cool. So around 63, 64. Okay. And, let, and let it come up, and I don't let it go. I don't let that one go above seventy. Okay, yeah. Well, see, and I, I do something similar, except I don't necessarily let it come up. I keep it at uh, sixty-three for maybe five to seven days until it's really, really darn close to what I predict is going to be the final gravity. Then I will jack it up to 70 to 72 just to finish it off keeping in mind that stan said and brew like a monk that the last 10 percent of a belgian fermentation can easily take as long as the first 90 percent so I, I try not to rush it once i think that uh, i've reached my final gravity i will crash it back down 
to uh, 32, 33 degrees and leave it there. I do get the phenols. Uh, that's one of the things I like about the yeast, but I don't find them overpowering most of the time. But again, that could just be the difference in, in tastes, right? Uh, what I think is is not overpowering might be to you. Yeah, I have a sensitive schnoz. <laughs> yeah, well, and I... Uh, I, I, you know, sensitive is one thing, but then it's a question of whether or not you like what you're sensing. And, uh, you know, we're all different in that respect. So I would say, though, Michael, that, you know, if you think that your triple is kind of like a little on the insipid banal side, uh, aging is not going to affect that. No. And, and in fact, I would if it's feeling insipid, then I'd wonder about how the yeast was treated. Because 3787 is anything but uh, boring. All right. Well, I think it's time for us to take a break and uh, get ready for our next uh, segment. When we come back, we're going to be talking about brewing techniques. Please stick around. Yeast's private collection release of global lagers covers the gamut of styles being brewed and celebrated around the world this time of year. 2575 Kolsch 2 from Germany produces a rich flavor profile and is suitable for a range of fermentation conditions. For international and American lager styles, 2272 North American Lager provides mild maltiness and a medium ester profile. And direct from the Austrian Alps, 2487 Hellebach Lager will create a rich, full-bodied, and complex malty profile sought after in many German lager styles. These Y-East Originals are available now through the end of December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com. Thank you for listening to those sponsors. Now it's time for us to get technical. Technique, <laughs> technique what? Uh, it's our time to talk about tech. Yeah, it's our time to talk about our technique. Take that how you will. That's and, right. And our first question goes to uh, Denny, and it's a serial offender, uh, Andrew K from Colorado Springs, who texted us at 626-765-1AL. Don't forget, you can always text or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. And this is his second question. We decided to split it up and put it into appropriate categories here. Uh, my second question is about hop utilization and altitude. I've been struggling to get the hop bitterness I'm looking for with my IPAs. It seems that even with multiple ounces of bittering hops like Simcoe, Magnum, or Warrior, we are not getting any, read, very little, bitterness in the final product. I came across uh, this article on Beersmith, and we'll include the URL in the notes, and it says, just wondering if you have any experiences on these matters and how altitude slash lower boil temps may affect my hop utilization. Well, due to the fact that I live just barely above sea level, I don't have much direct experience. So let's just kind of kick this around here a bit. So as 
If I remember correctly, hop isomerization uh, happens at temperatures above about 180 degrees Fahrenheit. 172, I think. It's in that 170, 180 range. Yeah, right. Okay. So it, it's around in that general area. So I have to assume that even at altitude, you're at least getting to that kind of temperature. So your isomerization should be theoretically okay. So one of the things, though, that we often hear is that a rolling boil is important to get the agitation to maybe get those oils mixed in. Maybe that's it. Probably one of the things that I would try is getting an analysis of the beer to find out exactly where my IBUs were. Uh, you could send them to Oregon Brew Lab here in Eugene. I would imagine there's probably some place closer to you out there in Colorado that can do something similar. But I think that what you need to do, first of all, is establish a baseline so that you know exactly where you are in terms of what you're getting with your IBUs. That will, number one, show you if you're even anywhere in the ballpark. And number two, if you're off, it'll give you an idea about how far you're off and maybe some information about how you can adjust things. Yeah, and so looking through the article that Brad wrote up on Beersmith, he's actually referencing a 2017 paper that Palmer put together about hopulization due to uh, altitude. And so the argument is, okay, so remember when you're in, say, Denver, for instance – yeah, uh, you're you're looking at your boil temperature is 206, I think, or two, uh, yeah, two, uh, 206, 203, as opposed to everybody else, everybody's favorite 212. Um, and the argument is that your hopulization at that point is about two thirds of what it would be at sea level. So that's one thing to look at. So yeah, if you increased your hops by the uh, by an appropriate ratio, you might do that. But again, you're saying you're doing that. The other thing I suspect is. The three varieties that you named there, Warrior, Magnum, and Simcoe, they carry a high alpha acid to them. But what I've always found using those sorts of hops is that if I really want something to feel more bitter, I need to I need to drive something to give it a little bit more of a bite, a little more rasp. So another thing to possibly try after doing an analysis of your beer is blend in a small dose of something like a Chinook into those beers that you want to have a really big bite to and see if that doesn't change your perception of what you're getting. Yeah, I think that I think that maybe Simcoe might have a bit of that already, but definitely Magnum and Warrior don't. And to tell you the truth, that's one of the reasons I generally avoid using those unless I'm making something like a, uh, a Belgian style or a, a lager or something where I want a more subdued hop character but still have the bitterness. So... You know, there you go, man. But like I said, I would definitely start by having your beer analyzed and see where you are right now. The next question comes from Gail Hudrizier. Boy, that's a good name. I bet I screwed that one up. Who lives in Tampa, Florida. Gail says, I have been brewing for only one year and I'm hooked. Why didn't I start earlier? I decided to go directly to all grain after just one batch. I love the whole process, but maybe not the bottling, and that is why I keg the beer now, too. Yep. I've been brewing a lot of IPAs and trying to keep it simple for now, but I'm always fascinated by all the different techniques available to home brewers. I'm still learning, of course, and trying to improve my beer quality. So far, friends and other home brewers gave me constructive feedback, and that was what I need. 
<laughs> Not that it is just good free beer. I am focusing to make a tasty beer, of course, but I am also interested to increase my efficiency. I heard crushing your own grain with your own mill might be a factor versus using the mill at the homebrew shop. I'm not trying to accomplish a 95% efficiency, and I understand that there are other factors like boil loss, for example, but trying to be in the 70 to 75% versus the mid 60%. What are your thoughts on this? Well, one, hey, howdy, Tampa person. Go uh, go join a, a pub or one of the homebrew clubs there if you want uh, constructive feedback that actually, you know, you know, won't necessarily be tied to the fact that it's just free beer. Um Yes, in terms of increasing efficiency, the first place you should always look is the crush of your grain. Uh, a couple of months back, I was having some problems with with my efficiency, and I was really started getting frustrated by it. And then I went and I double checked my mill and realized it. I let it get out of uh, out of crush depth, and so I was barely crushing my grains. So, yes, having a mill at home could be a factor that could help you increase your utilization because you could be more consistent. The other thing is also just paying attention to the crush that you get at your local homebrew shop. Most homebrew shops, unless they're manned by cranky old people, will be more than happy to help you adjust the mill so that you can get a better crush. As we've talked about before on the podcast, there's not, for most homebrewers, as long as you're storing your malt correct, there's not much harm in doing a lot of pre-crush and holding on to it for a little while if you can only make it to the homebrew shop every once in a while. But yeah, always start with the crush. You're not necessarily going to buy yourself you know, any additional efficiency just because you're doing it yourself unless your homebrew shop mill is in bad shape and, and maladjusted, which, by the way, can also happen, as I just demonstrated, to your own mill. So, <laughs> um, yeah, start with your crush. Take a look there. I worry less about your boil off and everything else. The other place to also look at where you may be losing efficiency or at least apparent efficiency is in what your water volume levels are. Because that's another thing, you know, if you get an extra half gallon of water into the kettle, it's going to look like you've had a much lower efficiency. So until you do all the calculations. So pay attention to those two things. Look, I have a homebrew, uh, I have my own mill here at home because I like having my mill at home and I like just being able to crush up the grain that I have on hand. It's not absolutely necessary. Denny, uh, for instance, doesn't have one at home, but he has one that's available to him. And it's a nice thing to have. But it's not absolutely necessary as long as you're, what you're doing is paying attention to that crush that's coming up. And uh, let me just point out to you that uh, there are a lot of homebrew shops who don't want to adjust their mill. They have them set to a certain gap for their reason. But there's nothing that prevents you from running your grain through it twice, uh, you know, and that, that will do a lot for you. Uh, I do that like when I'm crushing rye or something, because even though my mill gap is set as tight as I can get it, uh, sometimes the rye needs a little bit more because it's a small kernel. Uh, something else I will say is, dude, there's nothing wrong with mid-60s. <laughs> you know, that is not a bad efficiency. Uh, if you want to get up to 70 to 75 you know, that's only another 5 to 10%. So you're going to start to look at the little things that, that might affect it. Things like, uh, like water volume, like Drew mentioned, uh, things like mash temp, mash length. You could try, uh, mashing for a longer period of time and see if that helps you. Uh, one thing that I would suggest is checking your conversion efficiency. And if you go to uh, the website braukaiser.com, B-R-A-U-K-A-I-S-E-R.com, and look at Kai's write-up on conversion efficiency, 
that can help you get a real handle on where you might be losing efficiency. Uh, the efficiency of the conversion of your mash should be up near 100%. Now, listen to what I said. I said the conversion of your mash. I'm not talking about your mash efficiency. I'm not talking about your brew house efficiency. Uh, I'm talking about the efficiency of the conversion. And he has a series of charts there based on the amount of water that uh, you use in your mash that can help you figure out if you're getting uh, good conversion efficiency. So start there. Try running your grain through that mill twice uh, before you have to go buy your own, unless you want to just have one around. See what happens. And at least keep in mind that mid-60s is not bad efficiency. No, and at our level, that's just really another couple pounds of grain. So yep. there you go. Yep. <clears throat> and our next question comes from Jerry Pringle in the UK, who says, I've seen people discuss on Facebook about disassembling their disconnects for cleaning. So he's talking about kegs. Um, so unscrewing the cap and taking out the mechanism. Is there, is this something either of you do or would recommend? If so, how often? Currently, I just flush through lines with beer line cleaner and then leave the disconnect and tap set and cleaning solution to soak. Then rinse and run water through the line to rinse. Yeah, I do it every single time I empty a keg. Uh, I use picnic caps on my kegs. I don't have like taps on my refrigerator or anything like that. Every time I empty a keg, I unscrew the cap on the uh, picnic tap and I take off the uh, disconnect. I use the flare ones that screw on. I unscrew the tap and I clean the insides. And uh, judging by the one absolutely disgusting one I just saw, uh, you need to do that every time. Now, admittedly, this keg had been on tap for six or eight months, so there was a lot of chance for crud to grow in there. But it was just a very, very graphic illustration of why you should take those apart and clean them every time. Uh, I fill my keg with the uh, Kraftmeister oxygen or uh, alkaline cleaner uh, dissolved in water, uh, I, after I take apart my, uh, my quick disconnect and unscrew the tap, I put all those parts and the line into the keg with that uh, water in it and let it soak for a while. So yeah, Jerry, I would say, man, do it. And if you don't do it every time, do it every other time. There, and I, I'm, I'm a little bit more loose about this because I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm a little weird, which is strange because normally I'm the one who's more uptight. Cause you like strange off flavors in your beer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I also don't have a lot of hops in my keg, so. Um, I don't either. Uh, um, but I think the the thing I do typically is I'll I'll do my daisy chain cleaning mechanism that I've talked about before, which is a lot of you know pushing of cleaners around via CO two and sanitizers, and then usually what I'll do is every six to twelve months I'll completely do a disassemble. And then I'll also, you know, change out the gaskets. Now, of course, that rule goes out of the window if the keg shows any sign of infection, at which point in time it's immediately marked for uh, complete breakdown and cleaning. So that's me. Our next question comes from Jonathan L. in Alabama. And Jonathan asks, do big beers like stouts and barley wines need to have different amounts of priming sugar versus the same volume for a regular ale? Any other special considerations when bottling big beers? I've never found a need to have different amounts of priming sugar, assuming that my beer has reached terminal gravity. 
The main 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 concern I've I've dealt with is just you know the difference in terms of volumes of CO two I want. A lot of times with those uh, bigger beers like that, at least in the UK type ones, you know, so stouts and barley wines, as uh, Jonathan mentioned, I, I don't want as much carbonation, right? So I'll, I'll take it a little bit lower just for that purpose. Uh, other considerations for bottling big beers, make sure that you save yourself a whole hell of a lot of hassle and start with the biggest amount of vital yeast that you possibly can. Uh, I've talked about it before on the podcast when I've done my Belgian beers that have that in sort of insane carbonation, the champagne beers. Uh, I've never had to repitch into the beers because even after letting them sit and ferment for like six months, I've never had to repitch into the beer because those things always started with such a big burgeoning happy culture of yeast that they've been able to handle generating four to five volumes of co2 at in an 11 percent beer you know in a bottle so yeah lots of healthy yeast no don't worry about the differing amounts of sugar unless what you want to change is the level of carbonation yeah and like drew said uh the biggest consideration when you're bottling big beers is to just make sure that you have healthy yeast in there to carbonate it. Sometimes you might want to add a little bit more yeast when you bottle. Uh, I generally use some dry yeast for that. Uh, but other than that, the sugar doesn't really change. Our next technique question comes from Peter Crow in Ontario. Cal- I was about to say Ontario, California. It's Ontario, <laughs> Canada. Oh, okay. Sorry, Canada. He wrote in via email to say, uh, my name is Peter, and I'm a Canadian home brewer. I've been home brewing for about three years and started kegging my second time brewing. <laughs> There's another one of them. Yeah. About two and a half years ago, I built a bar in my basement. I have a keyser behind the bar wall, and I have three taps that run through the wall. I prefer kegging over bottling in every way but one. With bottling, it's easy to determine how much beer is left. With kegging, I find it tricky. I can't tell you how many times I pulled the tap expecting several pints to find a bunch of foam sputtering into my glass. I've tried a few ideas to get a better handle on the amount left in each keg. I tried the pick-it-up-and-slosh method. I bought a scale that you can hang the keg from. That worked okay, but was cumbersome. I try to write down each pint, but that only works if I remember. Do either of you have suggestions that I haven't tried? I'll, I'll give you my real quick snarky one. Yes, you know that you're about to run out of the beer in the keg when the beer is super clear and tastes its best. You know what? You stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. No, uh, Peter, you know, I think that you have tried just about everything that I've heard about or have tried myself. Uh, I'm generally of the lift it up and make a guess at how much is in there. But then like Drew said, uh, when it's the clearest, best tasting beer you've ever had in your life, it's the last pint in the keg. Yeah. And I will say there have been systems out there. Uh, Pico for a while had their keg smarts. Um, I think Plato has uh, something very similar where what they do is they, they basically track it by weight. And instead of like having to pick up the keg yourself with a scale, you sit the keg on an electronic scale that's constantly measuring. But those systems do cost money, and I'm not sure how well they work because I've never played with one of them. Um, There are other people out there who have obviously done things with flow meters, where they've put a flow meter in line and used that to track the amount of beer that's been poured to estimate the amount of beer left in the keg. Uh, But again, oh boy, money, and also now you got something extra to sanitize in your system. And then the other one that I've seen is also if you take a keg out of the out of your keyser or something like that and you live in a humid enough place, give it like five minutes at the start of the night and you'll see exactly where the dew forms on the side of the keg. And that will tell you how much you have left in the keg as well. Ta-da. Yeah, but if you're like me, I hate moving the kegs because then that uh, stirs up all the sludge in the bottom. Oh, yeah. 
And if the keg is almost empty, then you've just kind of like screwed up the last pint or two you've got in there. So yeah, the, I, get, I mean, the only I good guess, the only good answer is measured either with a flow meter or with a uh, a dedicated scale. I've got a better answer. Don't worry. Make sure that you brew enough to always have beer on hand, and then it won't matter. There you go. I like it. <laughs> if your keg suddenly goes empty, you just put another one on tap. Mm-hmm. Okay, our final question in the technique category comes from Rob Stewart in Santa Clarita, California, via email. And Rob says, I've always used my homemade siphon counterflow chiller, but it sometimes plugs or slows considerably from picking up some hop sludge. I'm moving on to an immersion chiller. Good on you, bud. What do you think would be the downside, besides possibly scalding, to just moving the boiled wort to the fermenter and cool it there? For that matter, what about a twist on no chill by leaving it there overnight? I now have an SS Brutex 7-gallon fermenter, which I really like. Well, howdy, neighbor. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Rob, uh, there's going to be a whole show coming up in the new year that's going to be all about no chill. So you can wait on that one. The couple of downsides, and we'll talk about this more in the episode when we get there. Um, obviously, you can't use anything that's going to possibly uh, break when you do no-chill brewing. Uh, and then you also have to stop and think about what you do with your hops and what that does to your bitterness, because you are effectively having a very long hop stand there. Uh, you know, And I totally get it. Uh, so that's part of the reason why I was playing around with the coming in hot that you heard Denny and I taste a couple of episodes back. And I mean, now Denny's had a couple of my beers that I've done no chill. And of course we had that experience in Australia and I think it's a perfectly viable um, mechanism. Now in terms of immersion chiller, totally with you, bud. Uh, Denny and I are both big fans of the jaded products. Um, the one thing is of course here in Southern California, since we don't have uh, Denny's 55 degree well, or however many fractions 45 above, these days. Yeah. I was going to say however many fractions above freezing it actually is. What we, what we have to do here in Southern California is use our groundwater to cool the beer most of the way down and then use, uh, ice water to chill it the rest of the way down. Or you could be a uh, kind of a hybrid method, use the immersion chiller to get it most of the way down and then no chill into a sanitized uh, fermenter and then wait a couple hours for it to finish chilling naturally. Um, so yeah, no chill is totally possible. There are considerations. More later. Yeah, I think that uh, what you proposed there, Rob, would work great. Give it a try, write it, and let us know how it went. Speaking of went, I think it's time we went for a break. And when we come back, we'll be taking the miscellaneous questions. And there's some pretty humorous ones there. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of beer and brewing books that help millions of brewers improve their craft. Visit BrewersPublications.com to explore their catalog of trusted brewing resources. It's time for the final segment here, and we have five miscellaneous questions that cover all 
kinds of interesting stuff. Andrew's going to take the first one, which comes in from Dominic Duffner in St. Louis, Missouri. Dominic says, My local homebrew club is thinking about doing a couple presentations at libraries about homebrewing to help educate people about the hobby and maybe get some people into brewing. I was thinking about talking about hitting the topics of how to brew an extract batch and cost and do a mock demonstration of the steps. I wanted to see if you had any other ideas on what to do. Thanks. Yeah, well, first off, go hit up the EHA's uh, website. They have a bunch of stuff about doing various presentations for teaching people how to brew. So start there so that you're not starting from scratch. The other one I would also consider doing is, yes, I think you're absolutely right. You want to do mock demonstration of this because I don't think you actually want to go through and you know tie people up for the full time it takes to brew a batch beer. Um, the other thing I would also encourage you to do is also do a mock demonstration of how to do, say, brew in a bag. So that you show those two, that there's a variety of techniques to doing this, and it's not just sort of with weird esoteric ingredients. Uh, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, remember, the other thing is also, uh, if you can, if your library will allow you, have some samples, because it always has a much easier sales proposition to tell people, hey, you should do this thing that's going to take you a couple hours and, and sort of you know require you to clean and do all this labor if you can lube them up with some uh, quality product. <laughs> I would say definitely don't do a brew in a bag de- demonstration. Keep it focused. Do the extract. Keep it really simple. I have taught many, many of these kinds of classes. And I've discovered what you don't want to do is try and dazzle them with the depth of your knowledge. Homebrewers know lots of stuff about how to make beer. And it seems like we want to just dump all that on people anytime we talk to them. I would say keep it simple. Stay away from extremely technical explanations. Keep it focused. Uh, maybe take a few different kinds of grains for people to chew on and tell them this is what your extract is made from. Uh, but again, you want to get these people into brewing. So the last thing you want to do is make it seem difficult. So stay focused, keep it easy, and keep it fun. Yeah, and one thing that you can do for the malt is not only have samples for people to chew on, but what we've done a couple of times in demonstrations is actually create sort of a a steep malt tea to allow Mm -hmm. people to taste. Because that also has the advantage over, say, hop teas. Uh, Hop teas being bitter, and most people get uh, sort of repulsed by strong bitter flavors. Hop teas are nice and sweet and actually carry some grainy flavors, so those are also good to use too. Yep, exactly. And, you know, if you, again, like Drew said, if you can have some beer there for people to taste so they can maybe get like an idea of how these ingredients are going to relate to the finished product. But again, number one, keep it really, really simple. Yep. And our next miscellaneous question comes from Wade, who wrote in via the website and says, uh, my question for the Q&A episode. What was the recording of the Carol of the Bells that closed out this episode? And this was on episode uh, 107. Uh, Who was the group or artist and fantastic music? Denny. Yeah, man. You know what? I look forward all year to Christmas time so I can use that one. And as a matter of fact, you'll be hearing it here in just a few minutes, closing out this episode. It is called Boogie of the Bells. All the music that we use comes from a music library that we bought. Uh, I've been asked about uh, if I played it and stuff like that. Uh, I wish. Uh, The reason it sounds so good is because I didn't play it. So... 
you know, I'll try and see if uh, I have any information about who actually put that together, but I can tell you that uh, it, it's library music, and it's one of my favorite pieces of library music. Yes, there's a reason why libraries are, are so fantastic. Yeah, that's right, because it's it's not me trying to play all the young dudes on a ukulele. Yeah, and by the way, I'm not kidding. He actually really did get excited last episode to go, oh, I can put in Carol of the Bells. Oh, yeah, 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 man. Boogie of the Bells. Boogie of the Bells. Come on. Yeah, yeah, Get yeah. With yeah. It. It's still Carol of the Bells. Yeah. Kenneth Collins writes in to say, in browsing Austin Homebrew for a new Intertap faucet, I saw this on their website, and it's a link that says Intertap Forward Sealing Stainless Steel Flow Control Faucet Legal Battle with Perlick. Check back soon. I know nothing about this. You got any info? Oh, I do. So, all right. So, Intertap is one of those uh, forward sealing faucets. You know, so your traditional faucet that you find in a lot of bars is a rear sealing faucet, which leaves the front of the mechanism, uh, well, initially wet and then dries out over time and gets sticky and then freezes, right? If you've ever gone out to a beer tap and tried to pull it open and it won't open, it's because of that, right? It's, it's kind of frozen because of all the sugar and protein left over from the previous beers. Um, so there was a, a really cool design that started with a company called Ventmatic, which is really this one dude, Brad, um, to make these forward seal faucets that actually keep the whole sealing mechanism wet the whole time. So it doesn't matter if you've been waiting five minutes or a month between pulls on the taps, they'll still open up just fine because the tap has been kept wet. And Brad has gone through multiple iterations of the company and the design, and it's been licensed out at various period of time to like Perlick and then stolen by Perlick, I think, in theory, or at least, you know, uh, used frequently by, <laughs> by Perlick uh, by a couple of Chinese uh, knockoff manufacturers. And Intertap is an Australian company. I think they're associated with Keg King, but don't take my word for that. They had apparently licensed the Ventmatic design. Uh, and now something weird is happening there where it's not being allowed anymore, or at least the usage isn't being allowed anymore. So yeah, I can never keep track of who Ventmatic is using or if Ventmatic faucets themselves are, are available. I have a couple of the original generation Ventmatics. They're fantastic faucets, and I really kind of wish that this would all get straightened out because it's a much better design than the rear seal uh, faucets. Cool. There you go, Kenneth. Hope that helps you. And our next question comes from Ed Bove, who wrote in via email to say, over the years of listening to the show, you both seem like you have a really good rapport with one another and have known and worked with each other for a long time. How did you guys meet? What brought you two together besides beer for the books? And what made you want to put out a weekly podcast together? And of course, do you have any funny stories about your experiences together that you could share on the podcast? No, by legal definition, we can't. <laughs> What made you want to put out a weekly podcast together? I ask myself that question almost <laughs> every day. You know? that, that's my fault. <laughs> well, both of us. Uh, so how did we first meet? As I recall, I was sitting in a shuttle van in Denver at the 2006 conference uh, with my friend Brant, who we've had on the show a few times. And you jumped in and said, hi, my name is Drew. And I said to myself, who the hell is this guy? And that's, you know, that's basically it. Uh, what brought us together for the books? Well, uh, Drew was on the governing committee and we got to know each other fairly well. And he knew that I had been looking for a book deal. I'd been sending out uh, samples of writing, talking to various publishers, stuff like that. 
And it was going nowhere because basically I, I write like a lawyer and it, it was not exactly the most uh, thrilling material, even though I thought it was brilliant. Drew had been uh, working on a couple books already. He'd done the Everything Homebrew book. He was working on the Everything Cider book and had been approached by a publisher to write uh, experimental homebrewing. He was busy. He knew that I'd been looking for a book to get into, so he very kindly got me involved in uh, in writing that book to help him so that there would be actually enough time to do it. And uh, yes, I've actually forgiven him for that. I was going to say, I mean, do you still consider that a kindness? <laughs> yeah, I do, man. Believe it or not, in spite of all the crap we give each other, uh, I really kind of like you. What made us put out a weekly podcast together? I think that maybe when we were down in Brazil, our, our first uh, overseas trip together to do book promotion, I said something about, you know, we could do a podcast. I've, I've got all the gear. I've been an audio engineer for years. I know how to edit it and stuff like that. And so there and it's we like, are. And it's like we're never shy about talking about beer anyway, so why not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and one podcast then begat two podcasts uh, where I said to Drew, okay, dude, if we're doing another one, you got to learn how to edit. Yep. Funny stories, man. So many of them. I, it's, I have a hard time thinking of any one because we go on a lot of, of trips together, uh, you know, to conferences, to do book signings. And we always have a great, great time. Uh, Drew has learned how to put up with me. Uh, I've learned when to ignore him. And I think it's pretty much a perfect uh, relationship. Yeah, well, and I always laugh because I think every time we're at HomebrewCon, there's always at least once or twice a day we'll get the question from people of like, wait, are you guys like, you know, surgically joined at the hip or some variant thereof? <laughs> it's like, no, we're just constantly working together. <laughs> what do you want? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I like, I mean, look, I, I love some of the stuff that we've managed to get up to. I mean, you know, sit, sitting on a bus in the Brazilian jungle you know, listening to people uh, laugh at the fact that we were bickering back and forth with each other. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the road trip in Australia, man. I mean, that was, that was so much fun driving from Melbourne up to Sydney along the coast. Uh, we just had, we had a really, really great time doing it in spite of the fact that Drew predicted that uh, we would kill each other. Well, and also I'm still very proud of the fact that I won the windshield wiper war. <laughs> just barely, man. Just By barely. One. But That's one right. still counts as a win. Uh, right. Yeah, because it turns out if you're sitting on the wrong side of the car for the driver's seat, they switched the controls for turn signals and windshield wipers as well. So, uh, right. yeah, no, I mean, it, it's been a lot of fun. And um, I I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't change much of what, what we've done because I think it's been uh, great fun. We are taking a break from writing books right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we uh, we just did three books back to back with no breaks in between, and so we're taking a break. But that doesn't mean that we don't have ideas for another one down the road. Uh, eventually, yep. uh, eventually. No, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, but the the fun part about this is just the the experience and you know getting a chance to you know really really see what the beer world can do and meet an awful lot of really really cool people. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. It's it's like all of you people out there who really, really make this worthwhile, you know, uh, we'll be getting 
tense and stressed over, you know, our schedules and having to do all this because I mean, you know, we, we both, you know, still write magazine columns and do a lot of other stuff. And then we'll get an email where somebody talks about, you know, how it just made all the difference to them that, that we said something or told them about something. And you know, man, that really, that is really a great feeling, uh, making a difference in people's life, a, a positive difference in people's life really is kind of what life should be about. Indeed. And now, talking about making a positive experience in people's lives, oh it's God. time for our last question. Okay, the last question comes from Will Allward. And Will is from Raleigh and says, what are both of your favorite go-to karaoke songs? Uh, I'll go first here, and it's like, none. Uh, I, I don't sing. I, I played in rock and roll bands for 50 years. Um, my, uh, my biggest vocal experience, I once cleared an entire bar full of drunks by singing one verse of Mustang Sally. So I don't sing anymore. I, w- I would have thought your favorite karaoke song was John Cage 433. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I may, I may actually pull that one out now that you mentioned it. <laughs> and for me, uh, I'm much like Denny. I, I'm, I'm not a singer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, my wife, however, is. And so I, I still find myself going to karaoke bars uh, on a more frequent basis than you would expect. And um, my job there is mostly to sit there, smile prettily, and enjoy gin and tonics while waiting for my wife to shock the hell out of everybody when she opens her mouth to sing. Um, but if I do get dragged up to the stage to go uh, uh, sing a song, then I... I tend to throw a curveball at everybody, and I will sing uh, She Caught the Katie, as sung by the Blues Brothers. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, I mean, look, John Belushi wasn't exactly the world's best singer either, so I'm in good company there. You know, and, and the Blues Brothers formed right here in Eugene, and I know the guy that taught Dan Aykroyd to play harp, and uh, John Belushi's character is patterned after him. Well, so those are our favorite karaoke songs. I think we've done enough. I think we have to thank you all for listening to experimental brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter where we're at exp brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. I'm on a bunch of different beer discussion forums, uh, but you can mainly find me on the AHA forum and on Facebook. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 6 26 76 51 53 or that is 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. 